Over the entire history of space exploration in the 20th century, only 12 people have walked on the moon. 12 sets of boot prints etched in the lunar dust. Another 12 people have seen the moon while in orbit. Just 24 people have recorded one of humankind's greatest achievements. All of them, men. That's one small step for man. NASA has been sending humans into space for more than half a century. From Alan Shepard's suborbital flight in 1961 to the modern-day astronauts living and working for extended periods on the International Space Station. But when it comes to space travel, the Moon has long held an outsized place in our consciousness. And it has always been a male domain. But in 2024, for the first time since the final Apollo 17 mission in 1972, NASA will once again get boots on the moon. The first woman and the next man on the lunar surface, making way for a new generation of space exploration as part of the Artemis program. We need to get to the moon, we need to stay at the moon, we need to learn how to live and work on another world and we need to go to Mars. This is the Artemis generation. We need to own it. We need to take control of it, and we need to make it happen. Named for the twin sister of Apollo, the Artemis program represents NASA's bid to get humanity back on the moon and further into space to destinations like Mars. It's an ambitious goal, but the program is already well underway. NASA is building its most powerful rocket ever, the Space Launch System, or SLS, to take missions into space. The space agency has tested launch abort systems and showed off spacesuit designs. In 2021, NASA will launch Artemis 1, an uncrewed mission to test the SLS, as well as the Orion spacecraft that will sit atop the rocket and carry astronauts to the moon. From there, NASA will launch Artemis 2 by 2023, a crewed mission that will take astronauts around the moon to test human support systems on its spacecraft. NASA is planning lunar landers and other support missions along the way, all with the hope of reaching its final goal, Artemis 3 and boots on the moon in 2024. Unlike the early Apollo missions, when NASA puts a woman on the moon, women will play a central role in getting her there. When it comes time for the Artemis 1 mission to take off from Cape Canaveral, Florida, the launch will be in the hands of one woman, Charlie Blackwell-Thompson, the Artemis launch director and the first female launch director in NASA's history. I'm Claire Riley and this is Making Space. Like so many women I've spoken to for this series, Charlie Blackwell-Thompson's journey into the world of space exploration began at an early age. For Charlie, 
That path started with the Apollo program in the 1960s, and while she didn't know it at the time, NASA's early forays into space would echo throughout her life and lead her to the role she has today. This is firing room one at Kennedy Space Center. Today, she is the launch director for this same room and will be at the helm of Artemis One. Charlie Blackwell Thompson was a child of the Apollo generation. Growing up in rural South Carolina, she remembers watching the moon landing with her classmates at school in the second grade. And those images stayed with her. I remember being struck by seeing the pictures of our astronauts walking on the moon. And I remember at night looking up at the moon and thinking, you know, kind of correlating what I had seen in the classroom that day. It seemed like the moon was just right there in that dark night sky and just kind of trying to wrap your second grade mind around that. And so there was that wonder, that awe of, you know, what we were doing in the space program. Going through school, Charlie was really good at maths, but she never had a clear idea of what she wanted to do with her life. She says that if she'd stopped to think about it, she would have loved to work for NASA, but she didn't see a path to get there. In high school, her physics teacher sat her down and asked her what she'd like to study in college. And still, she didn't know. And he said, have you ever thought about studying engineering? You're really good in math. And I said, well, what could I do with an engineering degree? And he looked back at me and he said, what couldn't you do with an engineering degree, Charlie? It was a life-changing conversation. One simple question that shaped her course. And the question that you hope all young women hear as they're starting to find their way in the world. What can't you do? Charlie graduated high school and went to Clemson University in South Carolina to study computer engineering. In her senior year in 1988, she landed an interview at the Kennedy Space Center. NASA was hiring for its return to spaceflight after the Challenger shuttle disaster in 1986. And as part of the interview, Charlie went to Florida to tour Kennedy. During the tour, she walked into firing room one, where they were preparing for the launch of the space shuttle Discovery later that year. It was another moment that would echo through time. This was the same launch control room used for the Apollo 11 mission that she'd watched on TV as a child. And she didn't know it then, but it would be the same room where one day she would stand as the launch director for Artemis. I stood there and I listened to a team talk to one another. I listened to them prepare space shuttle for flight. And I knew in that moment that I stood in that very firing room, the very firing room that we're going to launch Artemis One from. I stood there and I knew I want to be a part of this team. I want to prepare spacecraft and rockets. I want to get them ready to go fly. And I want to be a part of this team that does that. And I want to sit in this room one day. I want to earn me a seat here. She did earn her seat. Charlie graduated from Clemson and started work at the Kennedy Space Center as a payload flight software engineer for the Boeing company, working on the software and the avionics systems for payloads that would fly on the space shuttle. 
She worked on the Gamma Ray Observatory, which was launched on the Space Shuttle Atlantis in 1991. She worked on multiple satellite and space lab missions and got to work on the Hubble Telescope and the servicing missions that followed. In each of those jobs, I really did feel like I had just the greatest job in, in the whole world. You know, every time that I moved, I thought, wow, I thought I had the best job before. Now I think I've got the greatest job again. Charlie Blackwell-Thompson worked for 16 years on payloads before she finally joined the ranks of NASA in 2004. She became a NASA Test Director, or NTD, in the Launch and Landing Division. If she thought she had the best job before, that was about to change once again. She worked as a tanking test director on the shuttle program, responsible for loading the cryogenic propellant on board the space shuttle, preparing it for launch. She became a launch NTD and rose through the ranks to oversee the team of test conductors and directors who worked at Kennedy. If you've ever watched a rocket launch, you've probably heard one of NASA's test directors. While the launch director is the person responsible for the whole launch, the test directors are the team running the steps in the countdown, the voice you hear on the audio loop. Attention on the net, this is the NTD performing the launch status checks. Verify ready to resume count and go for launch. They're the ones you'll hear running through pre-launch checklists or polls as Charlie calls them and running through the final steps before the rocket takes off. You may have heard one of the polls that we would have done back in shuttle at um, during the final hold point, which was at T minus nine minutes, where you would hear something like, this is the NTD performing the launch status checks, verify ready to resume count and go for launch. And you would go through and you would pull OTC, TBC, PTC, all the way through your list uh, down to the, the commander, which was on board the space shuttle out of the pad. Our launch team is ready to proceed. We are tracking no constraints. Okay, I copy that. I'll do my poll at this time. KC Chief Processing Engineer, verify no constraints to launch. No constraints, Mike. It might sound like alphabet soup to us, but each of these polls represented the last critical checks before launch, the final go or no-go for flight. Okay, so it's a great day to go fly. So on behalf of the KSC Processing and Launch Team, I'd like to wish you, your crew, and a great mission. Good luck, Godspeed, and we'll see you back here in about 11 days. Over her years working in the shuttle program, right up until it ended in 2011, running through this lingo, these launch tests and checks, it became second nature. Not just because she worked on so many successful launches, she also did countless simulations. And that is when everything could go wrong. One of the ways in which we get ready for launch is we do simulations and we and we practice. We practice together as a team. And when I talk about a simulation, it's, you know, you walk into the control center, you bring up your displays, your data all looks like launch day. You, you may or may not have a vehicle on the pad. Some of our simulations, we're doing them already for Artemis. Um, but the data looks as if it's a real launch day, but it's all driven from simulators. And the sim team is very clever and they put in problems and scenarios that you have to go work through. During the simulations, the team in the firing room never knows what's coming, but they work methodically, identifying problems, troubleshooting and working through resolutions, or calling a no-go for the hypothetical launch. Then afterwards, they're debriefed, and then the next time, they do it all over again. New simulations, new problems, practising over and over so they're ready for the real thing. You know, you can walk in on launch day 
and everything may run perfectly. It, it may not run perfect every time, but there's a good chance you won't have any problems. But on SIM day, I can guarantee you that it is going to be a tremendous set of problems and they're going to be hard and they're going to be the tricky ones, not the straightforward ones, or you're, at least some of them are going to be the tricky ones. And so you go through that, you go through those a number of times so that by the time you get to launch day, you've seen most everything. She did those simulations so many times, Charlie says she can still run through the final poll she did at T minus nine minutes by heart. When you get to that poll, you know that your constraints list is cleared. It means all of your anomalies have either been resolved or you understand the condition and you're ready to go fly. And you do that final poll to ensure readiness and then you turn to the launch director and, and you say, launch director entity, our launch team is ready to proceed. We are working no constraints. And there's another thing that's hardwired into her muscle memory. In the final seconds before launch, when the engines were running, the team had a series of what they called safing steps, actions to take if a problem was detected. The engine started uh, just under six seconds in shuttle. So you're very time limited, very time critical in the event that you were to have one of these things happen where the software either detected something and cut the engine off uh, or whether your ground lock sequencer detected the same. But, but we had this all in paper and you would, I would, I can't say everybody did it the same, but these, what we call contingency sequences, I would always keep my fingers kind of sleeved into the back of the book because they were in the back because you didn't intend to run them. But if you needed them, you needed to flip to them quickly. And so I would always, as we got inside of like 10 seconds, I would always take my fingers and kind of thread the, the sequence through between my, my pinky finger and my ring finger. And I would be ready to flip to those, but I had the first couple of those memorized because as I'm turning the page, it was that critical that I wanted to be able to begin to enunciate to the team that we had had what we called an RSLS abort. And I wanted to be able to tell them to turn to page whatever the page number was, to begin those safing sequences. I think when I'm long since retired from NASA, I'll probably still have those in my head somewhere because you practice them and you work them so often. Charlie Blackwell-Thompson has such a calm and collected manner. When I speak to her, she's warm and friendly. That's probably the South Carolina accent, which I admit I could listen to all day. But she's self-assured, measured, seemingly unflappable. I personally can't imagine what I would be like standing in the firing room during a rocket launch. This is the room where it happens, where final decisions and split-second timing can be a matter of life and death. But Charlie, she feels like the perfect presence. Steady, composed, ready for anything. But that's no accident. It's the result of years of practice and knowing that her team has got her back. They've done the simulations, they've done the training, they run those checks and they can be ready to scrub the launch even when it comes down to the final seconds. In fact, Charlie and the team have already started running simulations ahead of the Artemis 1 launch in 2021. For Charlie, the Artemis program will bring its own challenges. New hardware, new ground systems, an entirely new spacecraft, 
but there'll also be a familiarity and a knowledge that she's prepared her whole life for this launch. And it's not just her preparing. For NASA, the Artemis launch is years in the making. Designing the SLS, attaching the rockets, preparing launch systems and running real-life stress tests of abort systems so they could save the crew within milliseconds if something goes wrong. Even the launch countdown, it's not a matter of minutes or hours. While the rest of us might tune in for the excitement in the final moments before the rocket blasts off, for the Artemis mission, the countdown starts roughly two days before liftoff. There's the initial power-up, the checks on all the systems on both the rocket and the spacecraft. They need to configure ground systems and then go through the process of tanking or loading the cryogenic propellant into the rocket. There are countless steps and checks on the way to T0, the end of the countdown and the moment of launch. There's something really special about launch day and there's something really special about T0 day. And coming into the control center on that day, you walk in and, and you can feel it in the atmosphere in the room. It's, um, there's a, a certain electricity, there's a certain energy in the room when you come in. You come in, you put on your headset, you know, you're listening to the events that as we're getting ready to, to begin our tanking operations. And there's a, there's a fair amount of conversation and movement in the room. But as you get out of tanking and you get into what we call terminal count or get close to terminal count where you're going through your final polls and your go, no-goes and, and ensuring that you're ready to go, as you get into those final milestones of launch countdown, um, the room gets incredibly quiet. And as you get down into, a, into the minute and inside of a minute, it is absolutely quiet. And you could hear a pin drop. And I tell folks that sometimes, and, and they say, you got to be kidding. But it really is extremely quiet um, as everyone is very focused in on their systems and ensuring that they're ready to go fly. Charlie Blackwell-Thompson still remembers the feeling of arriving at Kennedy on launch day when she worked on the shuttle program. Standing in the parking lot in the early hours of the morning and seeing the shuttle against the night sky ready for launch. Soon, she'll be there again, ready to take her seat as the Artemis launch director and send this history-making mission into the sky. When you would see the shuttle uh, sitting against the night sky, it, it was just so visible, so beautiful. Um, and so I would always take a moment to just stand there for a second and think about, you know, what I was a part of and how special it was. I can't wait to come in on Artemis launch day and take that same look from the parking lot to look out at the pad and see that vehicle that stands over 300 feet tall sitting against the night sky and how majestic and wonderful it's going to look knowing that we are just, you know, hours away from launch. The similarities between Artemis and the shuttle program, and even Apollo, they're not lost on Charlie. She'll be driving into that same parking lot, seeing the same night sky and getting ready to take her seat in the same firing room. But even though she's walking on familiar ground, there are new steps to take, new ways to push the bounds of human exploration and scientific capability. Artemis is also about that next step. 
It's about what we learn while we're on the moon and how we apply it to the next leap forward. And if you think about it and you think about how far the International Space Station, low Earth orbit is about 250 miles from us. It takes minutes to get there. The moon is somewhere on the order of 240,000 miles away, and it takes days to get there. Mars, destinations like Mars, are millions of miles away and take months to years to get there. And so the moon allows us, and under Artemis, it will allow us to learn how to live on, a, on another celestial body how to use in-situ resources that are there, how to do in-space manufacturing. It will develop a set of technologies. Um, and all of those things will be applicable and can be used uh, as we get ready to go to other destinations. I can't tell you how excited I am for what is to come. I mean, Artemis is going to bring an entirely new capability to America's space program. We are going to return to the moon. We're going to return to the moon with the next man and the first woman, as you said earlier. Um, and we are going to lay a foundation with this program that can take us not only back to the moon, but to other destinations. There's another symmetry that I can't help but notice. Half a century ago, when NASA was venturing into the unknown with Apollo, famously doing things in space, not because they were easy, but because they were hard, the steps that were taken were being taken by men. The first man in space, the first man on the moon, the men that dreamed it and the men that got them there. Women were barely in the picture. When we began this series, I spoke to Joanne Morgan, the only woman in the firing room during the Apollo 11 launch. Just like Charlie, she worked hard her whole career. When she went to college, she couldn't study engineering. She was told there were no women in the engineering school. So she studied mathematics and worked at NASA on the side, slowly rising up through the ranks at the space agency until eventually she earned a place in firing room one, the room where everything happened. She watched during the Apollo launch as her hard work paid off. And through those big windows in the firing room, she saw humanity's greatest journey begin. Lift on Apollo 11. I think about these last 50 years, that seems like such a long time. Um, but I think about how we have changed. You know, from Joanne was the only woman that was working a technical role. And that firing room had a lot of people in it. I mean, there were 400 launch controllers in that room. But out of the 400, Joanne was the only woman. Now, in that very same room, NASA is not only launching its next mission to the moon, but they're sending a woman for the very first time and the entire launch will be under the watchful eye of Charlie. Like many women who break new ground in their field, Charlie Blackwell-Thompson is torn when she thinks about being a role model. Her achievements are remarkable for anyone, not just remarkable for a woman. But at the same time, she knows the power of being an example for younger women, on opening the door so that others can follow her path, for that next girl who's good at maths and physics, who's sitting in her classroom, wondering what she's going to do with her life. 
If you ask me if I think of myself as the first woman launch director, the answer is I think of myself as the Artemis launch director. And I don't day to day think about the first female launch director. But when I get questions, sometimes you step back and you think about that and and you do recognize that that's important too because I want young people and young girls sometimes seeing yourself in that role or seeing someone who looks like you in a role affirms to you that it is achievable and so if me being the first woman launch director if if a young person a young girl um, looks and says that sends a message to them that I can do it too that I can see a female in that role, that that role is made for everyone because it is made for everyone. From the only woman in the firing room to the woman launching humanity back to the moon, the role of women in space exploration has been a story of progress. At times, slow and painful, as women watch their achievements being diminished, their roles pushed to the sidelines. For every Joanne Morgan in the firing room, there were countless women who couldn't get through the door. Aspiring female astronauts who were just told they didn't have the right stuff. Young girls who were told maths and science were for boys. But as time beats on, the presence of women will only grow. An industry making space for the women who have made space. Because this is what human achievement is about not settling for the status quo, wanting our reach to exceed our grasp, not being satisfied with what mankind can achieve. Because when we think of mankind, we're leaving half of the people out of the room. And when you open the door to women, it doesn't just even the playing field. It gets you closer to your goal. And just as that young Charlie watched the Apollo launch and looked up at the night sky, realising the moon was so much closer than she thought, A new generation is about to see something else that, just a few decades ago, felt far away. Putting a woman on the moon and taking humans further into space than ever before. For this new generation, the Artemis generation, anything will be possible. When I say I am excited to see what this Artemis generation is going to do, the journey that they're going to take us on, the things that we're going to discover, um, I am absolutely thrilled to be a part of it. Um, And I can't wait to see all that's going to be accomplished under the banner of Artemis. The women in this series built the field of space discovery from the ground up. But beyond their inspiring achievements, They're also making space for the next generation to not just have a seat at the table, but to fill the room, to take up space. Because young women cannot be what they cannot see. To see yourself represented doesn't just open a door, it ignites your imagination. And once that fire is lit, there is no ceiling in space that can stop you. Space was produced by Claire Riley and Sophia Fox Sowell. 
This episode was written and recorded by Claire Riley in San Francisco, California. The show was sound design and mixed with additional audio production by Stephen Beecham in South Lake Tahoe, California. Additional audio courtesy of NASA and ABC News. Making Space is a production of CNET. Thank you.